So if you'll take out your sermon outline, it says the king and I on it. We are in Esther chapter 7. We've sort of gone through this uh, book quickly uh, compared to how we normally go. Let's read this uh, chapter. It's 10 verses, fairly short. Please listen carefully as this is the Word of God. Esther 7, verses 1 through 10. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, thank you for your word and thank you for making us your people. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray again for understanding. Help us to see how you work. Help us to see your unchanging law. Help us to understand what you have done for us. Help us to show that to others. And for all of this, we need your grace. By your spirit, give that to each of us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Anna Leon Owens, a proper Englishwoman, was an unlikely candidate to change the course of Siamese history. In the early 1860s, Anna, a young widow and mother with two young children, was invited to Siam by King Mongkut, who wanted her to teach his children and his favorite concubines the English language and introduce them to British customs. And her experiences during the five years she spent uh, in the country there served as the basis for two memoirs, the English governess at the Siamese court, written in 1870, and the romance of the harem in 1872. Margaret Langdon found what may have been the only copy remaining in existence of Anna's book, The English Governess at the Siamese Court. 
She found it while she was a missionary in Thailand. And later, uh, in a secondhand bookstore in Chicago, she found Romance of the Harem, for which she paid $1, which turned out to be a good investment. <laughs> Landon took Leon Owen's first-person narratives and enhanced them with details about the Siamese people and their culture, called from lots of other sources, combining the two books, adding fictional elements to create a skillfully written novel, Anna and the King of Siam. Landon's book was translated into dozens of languages and inspired a 1946 film of the same title, a 1951 stage musical, The King and I, and the related 1956 film musical, The King and I, and then the 1999 film, Anna and the King. The most famous of these is actually the 1956 film starring Deborah Kerr and Yul Brenner, who won the Academy Award for Best Actor for that role. And the movie starts by focusing on Anna. After the death of her husband, she moves from England to Siam with her son, Louis, to become a teacher for the King of Siam, of course, now known as Thailand today. They arrive in Bangkok, where she has been hired to teach English to the children of the royal household. And stepping off the steamer from London, she found herself in an exotic land that she could only have dreamed of. Lush landscapes, mystic faiths, curious people, and the king's palace bustling with royal pageantry and ancient customs, and of course, the ever-present harem of some 2,000 women. She finds Siamese customs to be somewhat different from English customs, which often brings her into conflict with the king. And she threatens to leave when the house she's promised is not available, but she falls in love with the king's children and teaching them English, all 67 of the king's children. You thought you had big families. However, after some time of constant disagreement and bickering with the king, they find themselves starting to get along uh, much better, and of course, they eventually fall in love. But her British upbringing keeps her from marrying the king and from joining his harem. And she is about to leave Siam when she hears of the king's imminent death, and she returns to help his eldest son, who is her favorite pupil, who is going to be the new king and rule his people. This pupil, uh, the young prince, Chula Longhorn, was particularly influenced by Anna Leon Owens and her Western ideals. He learned about Abraham Lincoln and the tenets of democracy. And years later, he would follow his father as Siam's most progressive king. He guided the country's transformation, uh, started by his father, but he guided it from a feudal state to a modern society and eventually abolished slavery. And in the original books, that was one of the main themes of the original first-person narratives, was abolishing slavery. And her star pupil, the prince and later king, actually made that happen along with lots of other reforms. Now, the reality is uh, that Landon's book and all of the films have been denounced by the government of Thailand and banned from the country until recent times. Because historically, the real King Mongkut is the closest thing to a philosopher king uh, that modern Asia has produced. His political reforms essentially created 
uh, modern Thailand. He actually chose to become a Buddhist monk uh, and live a life of poverty and celibacy for 20 years where he witnessed firsthand the suffering of his people and became familiar with Western ways. He was an accomplished linguist. He spoke several European languages, including English, and was well-versed in science and history. And from his success in preserving his country's independence in an age of colonialism by playing off the Western powers against each other, it seems he knew a lot about foreign policy and the balance of power. He laid the basis for modernization long before Anna Liano and set foot in Siam. So it's hard to see uh, how she could have played as significant a role uh, in the areas that she claimed, most of which had been started before she ever arrived. Margaret Landon, the novelist, claimed that Anna Leon Zowen's books were about 75% fact and 25% fiction. Modern historians would flip those numbers. Then the reality is they're about 25% fact and about 75% fiction. However, the book and the movies have passed the test of time simply because throughout the story, Anna Leon Owens is fairly believable. She's annoyingly persistent. At times she's very selfish, and at times she's very selfless. And on occasion she's very, very brave. And she reminds me very, very much of Esther. She's brave on occasion, but often, like everyone else, she's trying to take advantage of her situation, spinning things her way and generally serving as an example of selfishness. Both are stories about the king and I, emphasis on the I. We pick up the story of Esther at the beginning of chapter 7. Hopefully by now you've figured out that Esther and Mordecai aren't exactly heroes of the faith. Their lives are filled with selfish, sinful choices that ultimately bring the Jewish people to the brink of destruction. Mordecai has now called on Esther um, to take a life or, death, uh, life or death risk, approach the king. We saw that happen, the high point of the story, uh, several weeks ago in chapter 4 when we read uh, Mordecai's reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for, for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now last week in chapter 6, we encountered the providential actions of God. First, when the king suffers a bout of insomnia, he has someone read him the record of memorable deeds. And during that reading, he just so happens to hear how Mordecai saved his life, and he learns of a failed opportunity to honor Mordecai. So the king makes a commitment to honor uh, Mordecai, and at that time, who just happens to enter the court but Haman. So Haman is given the privilege of honoring Mordecai. And Haman performs that assigned task. These guys hate each other um, because Mordecai will not bow to Haman. He will not stand when Haman comes by. He won't give Haman any respect or honor. And then Haman is planning to kill Mordecai because of that. But now he has to honor him. And so he does that. 
and then rushes home to relate his terrible life to his wife and his friends. And uh, their interesting response contains uh, some prophetic inklings in there. There's still an order of genocide hanging over the heads of the Jews. Haman has built a gallows. He still plans to ask the king to arrange for Mordecai's execution. That brings us up to date. We're now at the queen's second banquet, which is actually the seventh banquet in the book. Apparently banquets were a big deal uh, in Persia in those days. And so that's where we start, and we, uh, we start by hearing Esther's request. Esther's request. Verse 1, So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahas Urias said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Perhaps it'd be an understatement to say this chapter uh, describes intense interaction. Two people plead for their life. First, Esther, and that's been her plan uh, from the very initial invitation to Haman and the king. But then secondly, we see that Haman is going to wind up pleading for his life he's going to face the need to do so somewhat spontaneously. My primary interest in, in this section of the passage is the skillful manner in which Esther communicates with the king. It's not only what she says, but what she doesn't say that's worth paying attention to. Interwoven with her words, we'll observe some character issues about Ahas Urias that help to give understanding to how Esther communicates. Up front, I want to say it's been, uh, it can be tempting to conclude that it's Esther's ch carefully chosen words that wins the day. However, Proverbs uh, 21 reminds us the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Remember, God is the unseen actor behind the scenes, the main character of the story. It seems that Esther's intricate plan is a necessary part of the process of bringing Haman to justice. It's a plan that requires a combination of subtlety, boldness, and strength to carry it out. Yet Esther's plan by itself is not what turns around the fortunes of God's people. When Esther first risks entering uh, the king's presence in chapter 5, he asks for her request. And her answer is an invitation to a banquet to which Haman is also invited. At the banquet, the king again asks what she wants, and her response is an invitation to a second banquet and a commitment to state her request at that time. So now we're at the second banquet, and the king again initiates the conversation. Look at verse 2. 
On the second day, as they were drinking wine, they drink a lot of wine in Persia. You may have noticed that. Uh, After the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And I think Esther is purposefully allowing him to choose both the topic and the timing. I think the king's anticipation has been heightened by her delay in stating in her, her request. So once more, now for the uh, really the third time, he asks, and once more he promises a generous response. And her request, which we see in verses three and four, evidence both courage and craft. She says. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Notice that Esther doesn't identify her people as Jewish. She emphasizes the threat upon her own life, something the king would certainly take seriously. And then she presents the reason for her desperate request. Again, look at verse 4. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Well, actually, if you remember what happened, she and her people had been sold by the king. And back in chapter 3, he accepted money from Haman in exchange uh, for permission to slaughter the Jews. Esther wisely omits this detail. And she uses the exact language of the royal decree penned by Haman, which we see in Esther 3. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, men and women, in one day. Now we can only imagine the various thoughts that are going to race through the king's mind as he hears these words. Neither Ahas Urias nor Haman knew that Esther was Jewish. And so they have no reason to think that her life is in danger. And yet, that's exactly what Esther is asking for. She wants the sparing of her own life and the lives of her people. And at this point, Esther comes out, so to speak, as Jewish and links her fate to the fate of her people. If they were destroyed, she would be destroyed. If they were spared, she would be spared. And so with those words, Esther drops a bomb with pinpoint accuracy. She draws on her perception that she's pleasing to the king. However, she and and we too know enough about the king to realize that he's pretty fickle and he can change his mind and he can change his affections at a moment's notice. And we shouldn't underestimate the risk that Esther is taking here. Notice also that she has carefully avoided saying anything accusatory towards the king. It's actually his action that allowed Haman the freedom to establish this evil proclamation. The king bears some responsibility for the position that Esther is in, but you don't find the slightest suggestion of that in anything that she says. 
If you're familiar of the account of the prophet Nathan confronting King David uh, regarding his affair with Bathsheba, you see a similar pattern of bypassing someone's defenses to bring them to a point of righteous anger. Both in that instance and here in Esther, that's done. She sort of bypasses his defenses to get him to a point of righteous anger. And by verse 5, we see the king is fully engaged in the issue. King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? Again, note that Esther only has to answer his question rather than make a direct accusation against Haman. The king asked, she doesn't point Haman out, he asked the question, who's responsible for this? And now she's just answering the king's question. And the result of her identification of Haman is that he's terrified. You can only imagine what it would have been like for him. And the king is now in a rage, goes out to the palace garden. Imagine uh, it's not very comfortable to be around an absolute monarch when he gets angry. Just a guess. Especially when that absolute monarch is not known for his discernment and careful consideration of all the facts. I actually looked up, this is Xerxes, uh, known in Greek, looked up and uh, the number of atrocities uh, uh, that are credited to him, you know, fills pages. The numbers of just instant reactions. Uh, one of his advisors asked him, um, uh, had a big party for him, supported his war against the Greeks, uh, entertained him, had him to his home, all to ask him if he would exempt his oldest son from military service. Xerxes didn't think this was uh, such a great idea, so he had the son kidnapped, cut in half, and had the entire army march between the two halves. And apparently nobody else ever asked um, for their son to be exempted from military service again. So this isn't your most rational character in history. And we see that. Look at verses 7 through 9. We get the king's wrath, Ahas Urias's wrath. It says, The king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing by Haman's house, 50 cubits high. Now there's ironic turns and reversals described here. Haman finds himself in a position worse than the previous queen, uh, Queen Vashti. She was deposed and banished from the king's presence. Haman is going to lose his life because of the king's rage. Further, the one from whom Haman begs uh, for his life to be saved is Esther. She's Jewish, the very people he has plotted to kill. He is now begging one of them for his life. And additionally, the gallows that he has built are now going to be the instrument of his own death. 
I think it would have been difficult for anybody following the story to envision how radically different, how radically changed things would become by the end of chapter 7. One of the questions I have is, why does the king leave? Why does he leave now that he knows who the real enemy is? Now that he knows about who started the whole evil plot, you know, why doesn't he simply shout off with his head? But he rises and goes off into the garden alone. You can see him, imagine him pacing up and down, struggling with himself. By having rashly signed off on Haman's decree, he's endangered the lives of two special people, two special Jews, Mordecai, who had saved his life, and Esther, his beloved wife. And no doubt, as the king's walking back and forth in the garden, trying to control the anger that comes up uh, within him, uh, apparently without a whole lot of success. The book of Proverbs speaks to a king's wrath. You can actually look up king's wrath and come up with a number of uh, verses about that. Proverbs 16 says, A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and wise men will appease it. Proverbs 19.12, a king's wrath is like the growling of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. The king is angry at Haman quite properly, um, and Haman knows all this doesn't bode well for him. But the quandary for the king, the problem uh, for the king is that On one hand, he's really pleased with Esther. Three times he's publicly offered to generously respond to her request. But her request has likely faced him with his involvement in Haman's plot. And uh, even though he never actually acknowledges any responsibility at all. And every other time we've seen him, whenever a predicament has come up, he has sought counsel for his actions suggesting that there's a certain amount of insecurity beneath the king's bravado. But regardless, apparently there are no counselors available except for the one he's not about to ask. And so he's off by himself trying to figure this out. And he's in a rage. He talks of the king's wrath. And he's not sure what to do. Haman is the equivalent of the prime minister, the number two guy. He's entrenched himself in the affairs of the kingdom. The king knows that, you know, Killing off the prime minister will probably upset the whole kingdom. It's a radical step to execute the prime minister. Cause a great deal of distress. It'll change the pattern of life. But Haman solves the dilemma for him. A fatal faux pas. A huge social blunder. His action in falling on the couch where Esther was reclining violated all of the extremely strict rules of palace uh, etiquette and decorum. If you think about the paradox here, Haman is furious because the Jewish man wouldn't bow down to him, and now Haman is falling down before a Jewish woman begging for his life. And what's more, uh, I think it's fascinating, his falling down before Esther who's a cousin and, and you would say a near daughter of Mordecai, neatly fulfills his wife's pro- prophecy at the end of chapter 6, where she said, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. 
it's likely that Haman had no ill intention against Esther. This is most commentators do not view this as some sort of sexual assault, but just begging for his life. But it sure doesn't look like that to the king because he arrives just at that moment, just so happens to walk through the door when he sees Haman fall on the couch where the queen is. And he has, there's no doubt in his mind what's going on here. And now we have the construction of that 75-foot-high gallows come back into play in the story. Now, these aren't the gallows like you would see in an old Western, you know. Uh, These gallows don't actually involve uh, hanging in any traditional understanding with a rope and a noose. Uh, These gallows, in fact, support a long, sharp pole upon which the victim is impaled and then left hanging on the pole for everyone to see as a warning to the next person who would cross the king. And of course, Haman built it really high so everyone could see. And it was intended to kill Mordecai, but now it's an instrument for Haman's death. And so the chapter ends with verse 10. The king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai, and then the wrath of the king abated. Ahas Urias may have well known that Haman was just incredibly frightened for his life, but he needs an excuse to execute Haman, and that's what he's been given. And so the chapter ends with Haman being dead, and the king's fury dies with him. One of the ironies of Haman's life is that it illustrates biblical principles recorded a number of verses uh, throughout the Bible, but particularly in the book of Proverbs, and I've listed a few of them uh, there for you. Um, Proverbs 26, whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. Proverbs 14, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Proverbs 16, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. And Proverbs 11, the righteous is delivered from trouble and the wicked walks into it instead. You read that and you think it was actually written as a commentary on Haman's life. You know, the uh, New Testament uh, companion verse, uh, we come from the parable of the rich, uh, the rich fool in Luke 12 where at the end of that parable, God says to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Haman wanted to kill Mordecai and the Jews, and the king killed Haman. See, the real issue here in this chapter is not the decree of genocide against the Jews that the king allowed. That's important, and we're going to see how God works that out in the next few chapters. But the real issue here, I think is the unchanging law of the true king. The unchanging law of the true king. Haman sowed anger against Mordecai. And Haman reaped anger from the king. This unchanging principle of sowing and reaping is illustrated throughout the scriptures and it applies biblically to both believers and unbelievers. Of course, the most well-known passage comes to us from Galatians chapter 6, where we're warned, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. 
for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. In Job we read, as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Going back to Proverbs, we hear, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity and the rod of his fury will fail. If you think about biblical history, um, you see this principle is enacted over and over and over again in the Bible. It's constantly coming true. In Genesis 27, Jacob kills an animal and lies to his father, pretending to be Esau. Years later, in Genesis 37, Jacob's sons kill an animal and lie to him, pretending that Joseph is dead. In Exodus, Pharaoh gave orders to drown all of the Jewish baby boys. And years later, his army is drowned in the Red Sea. In 2 Samuel, King David takes his neighbor's wife, and commits adultery. And David's own son, Absalom, took his father's concubines and openly committed adultery with them. David killed Bathsheba's husband, and three of David's own sons were slain, Absalom, Amnon, and Adonijah. You go to the New Testament, Saul of Tarsus, encourages the stoning of Stephen in Acts 8. When he becomes Paul the missionary, he gets stoned at Lystra in Acts 14. This law of sowing and reaping also applies to doing what is good and right. Because the next verse in Galatians says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. No good deed done for the glory of God is ever forgotten before God. No loving word done in Jesus' name is ever wasted. If we don't see the harvest for it in this life, we'll see it when we stand before the Lord. And Jesus even tells us that even a cup of cold water given in the name of Christ will have its just reward. Matthew 10. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Haman was hanged or impaled on his own gallows. His body was taken down and buried. All of Haman's wealth, all of Haman's glory couldn't rescue him from death. He couldn't take any of it with him. They found a very interesting Psalm 49 tells us a lot about this situation. It says, be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. I didn't spend a lot of time looking into it, but I was wondering why the rich man goes down and his glory does not go down after him. Um, that deserves some thought. Earlier in that same psalm, we read, Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly, listen to these verses carefully, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that it should live on forever and never see the pit. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly. 
Haman couldn't uh, buy, beg, borrow, or steal his way out of his dilemma. He was going to pay for his anger and his pride and his arrogance with his life. As we know, Romans 6 tells us, uh, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a law of sowing and reaping. It's the unchallenged law of the true king. But there's two parts to Romans 6. The first part reminds us the wages of sin is death. But it's the second part that's important. It's the second part that gives us an out, so to speak, from the law. The free gift. It's not what you sow. You don't earn this. It's the free gift of God as eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're in the midst of a campaign to multiply the ministries of Potomac Hills. And let me tell you again, we will ask you to pray about giving sacrificially, but the campaign isn't about money. And we're going to ask you to pray about all of our priorities of what we want to accomplish over the next several years. But the campaign isn't about more pastors or a bigger property. See, the campaign very much is about this uh, unchanging law of the true king and how that law affects people's lives. We all know people who are real sinners. We can see that in them. We recognize it well because we used to live there. And truth be told, many of us keep going back to see what that life is like. And we watch these people, maybe family, maybe friends, maybe neighbors, maybe co-workers, we watch them living in sin and sowing sin and reaping more sin. And we know without a shadow of a doubt that the unchanging law of the true king is the law of sowing and reaping. But then we discover, so to speak, there's an exception to the rule. And that's what this campaign is all about. We find that exception in Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, to be fair, the law isn't broken. The sin still must be paid for, and the payment is still death. But God in his mercy sent forth his son, who at the cost of his own life paid that debt for you and me. In 1 Peter, the apostle tells us how costly our redemption is, the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 1 Peter 1. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's now. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And those who find that exception bound up in the cross of Christ will discover a life that's been full of sowing sin doesn't have to end in reaping death. And the ultimate end of this campaign is the expansion of that message, that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
The power to change lives comes from the gospel of God's grace as it's found in Jesus Christ. And that's our aim, to change lives by the gospel, to help people see Jesus and to see Jesus change those people. Every single one of us is going to have a king and I moment. Might be Esther and the king, Haman and the king, Anna and the king, David and the king. Put your name in the blank and the king. But that moment is coming. It's coming for you and it's coming for me and it's coming for all of our friends and it's coming for all of our neighbors. It's coming for everybody at school and it's coming for all of our coworkers. And when that moment comes, will we have given them the gospel? That's what we need to do. That's what this campaign is about. That's what this church is about. That's what this book is about. And that's why we need to pray. It would be good to start now. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess that as we study Esther, we do so with a sense of faithlessness. We know this is a story not just about her, but about us. And we know that you bought us with your life and death. We know you love us more than we can possibly imagine. We know you've secured our safe arrival in the new heaven and the new earth. There's no chance the wedding feast of the Lamb will not take place. And yet even as you've determined a glorious end to all things, so you've appointed the means to that end, we're not just to be the bride in waiting, but workers in the harvest. And as the bride, as the church, we're supposed to be getting dirt under our nails as we do the hard work of evangelism and missions. You send us out like lambs among wolves, like esters among Hamans. It's a costly work you've given us to do but you tell us it's worth the sacrifice for you come as the lamb among sinners and the lamb for sinners. And the price you pay to have and to hold your bride turns our most agonizing work into kingdom joy. Lord of the harvest, this morning we pray, send us into the harvest that you've secured for yourself. What more could we possibly want for our church family? What other story would we choose for the rest of our days in this world than to be the means by which you gather your bride, your church, from all the peoples, nations, tribes, and tongues? and to prepare her for a future beyond our wildest dreams. Teach us these things. Enable us to believe these things. Give us the desire to act on what we believe. I pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.